Well, good morning. Again, my name is Trevor. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're visiting with us, we just want to welcome you. We'd love to speak with you after the service. If you would, grab a Bible and open up to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. Dorothy Sayers is the famous author of the Lord Peter Whimsey mystery books. And she argued and believed that a truly great mystery gave you all the clues you needed to solve the case before the big reveal. The Bible is a similar kind of story. And that as you read across the canon, you have all these clues. And during this Advent season, as we're celebrating the coming of our Lord, we've been looking at some of these clues that have been sprinkled throughout the Old Testament in this series, talking about the promised son. And perhaps the place in the Bible that tells you the clearest that this is the way the Bible's laid out is Luke chapter 24. If you remember the scene, Jesus has just been resurrected and he shows up to walk along the road to Emmaus with two other disciples. The problem is they don't recognize him. And they're grumbling to each other and, and he says, you know, what are you guys talking about? And they go, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know about these things? And in one of the greatest lines in the whole Bible, Jesus plays dumb. What things? What are you talking about? And they go, well, of Jesus of Nazareth. You know, we, we, you know, we thought that he was the promised one of Israel. And, and he came and he, did, he was a man mighty in word and deed. And, but our rulers and the Romans, they crucified him. And so then this morning, some of our ladies went and the tomb was empty. And an angel said, he's risen. And we just don't know what to make of all these things. Do you remember Jesus' response? I think we read past it too quickly. It's rebuke. He says, oh, fools and slow of heart not to believe all the scriptures said would take place. It'd be like this. It'd be like reading through Lord Peter Whimsey and having the reveal happen. Be like, oh, I totally didn't see that coming. And the ghost of Sayers popping up and being like, you twit. All the clues were there. That's kind of what Jesus does. He rebukes them for their slowness, for their thickness, as it were. So again, we have been looking at some of these clues, and so far we have looked at the way that the promised son was also the promised son of Judah, or the lion of Judah, in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And then last week we looked at how he was the coming king, and how that is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, that all of the promises of God were going to wrap up in this Davidic heir, as it were. And this morning we will look at Ezekiel 34. And one more covenant, the covenant of peace, which we see here. And God says that he's going to tie these things all up in this final covenant. Because the first covenant with Abraham was a covenant made with his offspring. He, he, see, the Abrahamic covenant was for a people, a place, and a promised blessing for the world. And then you have the Davidic covenant, which binds those things together. But in the meantime, all of Israel operated under the Mosaic covenant. The, the, the covenant that ruled and regulated how it was they were to worship. So I have to give you a little bit of history of how we got to this place in Ezekiel 34. Because the problem is this. This new covenant, this covenant of peace we're going to read, is with the Davidic heir, and it's with all of Israel. But here's a problem. Israel has just been completely crushed. So there is no people in that place, and there is no Davidic heir, and there is no seeming promised blessing available any longer. So how did we get here? Well, back from 2 Samuel 7, which we saw last week in the Davidic covenant, if you fast forward to his grandson, a man named Rehoboam, he was an awful ruler, and basically the kingdom splits, and it becomes Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And God tells Jeroboam, a man who's leading in the north, and he says, if you will honor me and you will worship as I have prescribed in 
the Mosaic Covenant, I will bless you. But what that meant for Jeroboam is that he was going to have to go out of the north and down into Jerusalem, into the south, and worship as God had prescribed. And he refuses to do it. So they're exiled. They're, they are taken into captivity because they don't worship God as he has prescribed. Literally, what he actually says is he makes two golden calves and he says, this is your gods. Worship these. Because that worked so well the first time they worshiped a golden calf. Well, that was the north and they were carried off by Assyria into captivity. 150 or so years later, Babylon comes and crushes the south because while the south had some fits of revival, they again did not worship as God had prescribed. And so they were taken captive and conquered by Babylon and led away. And as a matter of fact, the first 20 chapters of this book walk through these prophecies of it's coming, it's coming. The great city is going to fall. The temple is going to fall. And then finally, in chapter 33, just before this, the word comes. Some 700 miles, the last of the exiles have come with the news. Jerusalem has fallen. The city of the great king is no more. There is no temple. It's gone. And so it is in that context that this prophecy comes. So we will look at this text under three headings. I don't know if we have a slide up there, but if not, we'll do three parts here. The first is the need for a true shepherd, verses 1 through 10. The true shepherd and the judge, 11 through 24. And then the God who grants peace will be 25 through 31. So first, the need for a true shepherd. Would you look at verses 1 through 10 with me? The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, and they wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely, because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. It was well known in ancient Near Eastern cultures that oftentimes shepherd was used for both kings and the god, the local god. It was, a, it was a common thing. You go read ancient literature and you'll see this often. The shepherd was this in-between, as it were. So, for example, you get one commentator notes that frequently the earthly king stood as a representative of the divine shepherd who had appointed him. This is why in 2 Samuel 5, verse 2, God tells David, you, David, will be will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. The king is the under-shepherd. He's standing in, as it were. And so God says to these shepherds, which in context is likely those kings who had failed the people, he says to them, you were only out for yourself. You only cared, just like Jeroboam in the north who refused to worship as God said. Instead, he did it his way. He only cared about himself and protecting his little kingdom. 
And so God says, I am against you. In fact, this language that you have here of this, their, their abuse and their rough treatment, it's only used two other times in the Old Testament. And it's speaking of the way the Egyptians treated the Israelites when they were slaves. Their own kings were treating them this way. Now, Hebrew is a language of puns and wordplay. And so in this section, you kept hearing the shepherds, they're shepherding themselves, and the shepherds are feeding themselves. Well, the word, the Hebrew word for shepherd, can also be used for feeding. So you could read this, you shepherds are shepherding yourselves, and shepherding not my sheep, but you're shepherding yourselves. But what they're saying is you're feeding yourselves, you're caring, you're tending to yourselves, you're not tending to or feeding my sheep. And that's what's going on here. They slaughtered the fat ones. Those were meant to be the sacrificial offerings. They, they were slaughtering them. They were abusing the sheep. You see the metaphor as it's played out here. And not only were the shepherds abdicating their duty to the sheep, but they've abandoned their duty to God because all shepherds were under shepherds. They're only representatives. So God denounces the shepherds in this opening part of this prophecy here. And did you notice how many times it said, my sheep, my sheep? It's both a, teen, a term of ownership, but a term of endearment. These are my sheep, and you have abused my sheep. Which is to say, these shepherds are not owners of the sheep. They're merely stewards. And yet they have completely abused their rule. If you've been with us for the last couple weeks or months, you'll remember when Pastor Matthew preached on Matthew 23, and the seven woes against the scribes and Pharisees, the hypocrites, and so much of the language is drawn from here. And so the first obvious application from this section would be to the elders of the gathering church. And in keeping with the pattern we've been doing for this Advent series, let's ask a few questions, application questions. So my fellow elders, do we see our primary calling as under-shepherds, as stewards, not as owners and rulers, but as those who lead by following the chief shepherd? A second question to my fellow elders, but by extension to husbands who are called to lead in your homes. Could you say at the end of this year that you have grown in your leadership because you've grown in your submission to and following of Christ? At the end of the year is a great time to think through those types of things. But also there's application here, I think, for the members of the church. Because I hope that you, when you look at the elders, that your first thought is that we are leading that way. And that your second thought is that you'd pray for us to lead in that way. So to the members of the gathering church, do you regularly pray for your elders? Do you pray that we would be continually resubmitted to the scriptures? And that we would be constantly filled and led by the Holy Spirit so as to lead well? And a last point for those who are not yet members of the church. Maybe you've been here for a while. Uh, I would just say, notice something. There's just an assumption built into this text. There is a set, defined set of sheep and a set defined set of elders. Which is to say, as Matt pointed out during the catechism, that the church is a defined group by God. So if you haven't committed yet, commit. I don't know how you obey the New Testament command to submit to your leaders if you haven't committed to the flock who is led by a group of leaders. And I get that we live in a very non-committal age, but I would love to talk with you more because it's an important thing. We are charged as Christians to submit to our leaders. And that assumes you're a part of a local assembly as well. But this point's going to get a little bit sharper. 
because we see that God is going to use means. Now, it's going to come at the end of the second point, but God is about to go on a bit of a tirade, as it were, and say 17 or 18 times, I will shepherd my people. And then he's going to flip the script at the end. So look with me at verses 11 through 16. This is the true shepherd and judge. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. And there they shall lie down in good grazing land and on a rich pasture And they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. And I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. And I will feed them in justice. So, once again, we said in the ancient world, oftentimes the shepherd was picture of the king and God. But clearly here, this is also a biblical category. It actually goes back to Genesis 48, verse 15, when Jacob would say, God was my shepherd all of my days. And if you're familiar with your Bible at all, you you can't think about the, the theme of shepherd very long without going to the Psalms, in particular, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So here in Ezekiel, the response... So the failure of these shepherds is that God says, I will do it. And I myself, you heard it over and over again, doubling that first person pronoun, I, I myself will do this. Now you may have caught the contrast. In verse 4, we got the list of the failures of the, of the shepherds, the human shepherds. And it says that they did not strengthen, heal, bind up, bring back, or seek God's sheep. But then in verse 16, the Lord says, he himself will do all those things in reverse order. He will seek and bring back and bind up and strengthen. God will shepherd his people. But then there's a startling bit at the end of verse 16. Did you catch it? All of a sudden he says, and I will judge the fat and the strong. And I will feed them in justice. You could actually say, I will feed them with justice. I'll feed them justice. So look at verse 17 through 22. We'll see kind of what's going on here as God now turns to discern even between his own flock. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. Now, to understand some of what's going on, the context here is that that word, the scattered, is used throughout Ezekiel to speak of those taken off into captivity. 
So it seems that as, as these groups have been taken off into captivity, there was actually like three times this happened. At first, it was kind of the wealthy and the powerful. They were taken off. And then Israel started to fight against Babylon again. So they did a second one. And then now, finally, they've just been totally crushed in chapter 33, like I said. But even in that group of exiles, that group of captives, some are vying for power. Some are trying to nudge. You get the imagery of shouldering and, and, and working their way in. And they're fattening themselves up. They're taking advantage, as it were. And so God says he will judge between his own sheep. He's going to make difference. And you see this picked up in Matthew 25. when Jesus speaks about the end judgment of the sheep and the goats. That there will be this final judgment. And we heard this in John 10, which we read earlier. Where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So putting these texts together, here's what we see, is that those who are truly God's sheep are always his sheep. They cannot be lost. There's no being in, in his, his fold and then somehow being misplaced. No, God's the judge. He determines who his sheep are. He chooses. So we need to have a category then in understanding that there's always going to be some who look like sheep, who talk like sheep, walk like sheep, and smell like sheep, but end up really being goats, to use the metaphor. 1 John 2.19 puts it this way. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had have been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. Not all those who look like and call themselves God's sheep are really God's sheep. And one day he will distinguish. He will judge between the sheep, he says. Now, it says that God will rescue, you could translate that, save his flock. So the true sheep persevere because God is the savior. God is the rescuer. God did not leave it open, ended as it were. He says, I will save my flock. So his sheep, to be one of his sheep means you're a part of God's flock. And that means that God is going to accomplish his purposes for his sheep, as we saw in the catechism today regarding the church. But how will he do this? We find out in verse 23 and 24. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken." Again, the, the shift there can be a little jarring because some 17 or 18 times God has said, I'm shepherding, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm going I'm to let my David do it. it. It's a little odd because how can God say he is guaranteeing, he is perfectly, he himself is perfectly going to rule his sheep and yet hand that job off to someone else? It seems rather odd, does it not? Well, that's why we read from John 10 earlier because you need to have a God-man you need to have God who can perfectly rule and shepherd his sheep, and, and yet he also has to be of David as well, which is why we're celebrating Advent. So this side of the cross and resurrection, we look back and read Ezekiel 34, and we say, oh, clearly, this is Jesus. This is the good shepherd. He is, as we've seen, the true son of Judah and the lion. He is the true son of David and king, and now he is the true and good shepherd. And he will shepherd his people perfectly as God has called him to do. So to draw from John 10 a bit more, you hear 
in that passage we read earlier, he says, I am the door to the sheep. There's, there's no other access. The only way in is through the door, is through Jesus. And unlike the hired hands, unlike those un, uh, under shepherds, that Jesus will carry out his task perfectly. So John 10, 14 through 15, he says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Who are the other sheep that Jesus is going to bring? It's the Gentiles. He's going to bring in the Gentiles. And actually, two chapters later in John 12, you see this explicitly brought out. But do you see the argument Jesus is making? He has, he owns, he possesses sheep. So that means that when you think about Jesus laying his life down for the sheep, it's a distinct category. Jesus didn't die for this amalgamous, undefined, nondescript kind of just group. His, his death, his atoning, covering death, was not this, did not create a vat of atonement juice that anybody could just, you know, oh, some atonement juice. No, Jesus died for his sheep. Just like Ezekiel 34 says, God will shepherd his sheep. He will make distinctions between all those who think they are his sheep. So Jesus is fulfilling that very thing. Jesus himself will die for his sheep, which means this. That salvation is not something Jesus makes possible, but Jesus actually saves. When he says it's finished, he means he's accomplished it. It's done. It's not a world of possibility. Jesus is not an almost savior or a maybe savior. I died for my sheep. They will be saved. But I imagine many of you sitting here today, maybe you did not grow up in the church, or maybe you're not a Christian, and you might be wondering, but why did Jesus have to die? I mean, isn't there other ways? Couldn't there be some other way to solve this problem instead of having Jesus die? Well, the answer is going to come in our last section, speaking about this covenant of peace. So we'll look at the third point, the God who grants peace. Look at verses 25 through 31 with me. God speaking again, I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers in their season and they shall be showers of blessing and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield its increase and they shall be secure in their land and they shall know that I am the Lord. When I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslaved them, they shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make, uh, none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them. And that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep, of my pasture. And I am your God, declares the Lord. That phrase, covenant of peace, is used four times in the Old Testament. Uh, one of them has to do with Phineas, and it's being used in a different context. In, in, uh, it's a, a priesthood. But here, and then in, again in Ezekiel 37, and in Isaiah 54, all three times it is clearly connected with the new covenant, the promises that were going to come that Jesus will make. 
And the word here where he says, I will make a covenant, it is only used, an exhaustive word study will show you, it is only used for the cutting of a new covenant, a fresh covenant. Not renewing, it's only used for a new covenant. Why would a new covenant be needed? Well, because we've just said the temple has been destroyed. Jerusalem is no more, which is the exact curses of the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant's done. It's ended. They have failed. They have been violated. It's over with. The curses have been brought down upon them. So they have no peace with God. They need a new covenant. And so God says, I will cut a new covenant. Further, there's this underlying assumption here that this new covenant, this covenant of peace, is one meaning that you don't have peace. Because maybe you're here this morning saying, oh, I've never really been a Christian, and I wasn't Jewish, so I wasn't under the Mosaic Covenant. So maybe I don't need peace. But the underlying assumption here, because Jesus says that he's including the Gentiles in this covenant made with Israel, right? We saw in John 10 that you actually do need peace with God. Well, why is that? Well, there's a hint in the language from which we just read. Did you catch it? Did you catch all the language about uh, and their fruit trees will be bountiful? And the hills of Israel, there'll they'll be, they'll be no more, there'll be no more beasts or prey. That ring a bell to anybody? It's language of Eden. He's saying, I'm, I'm going to, in this new covenant, I'm going to bring it back like it was in Eden. Which also should remind us that all people descend from Adam. And Adam did violate a covenant in our place, as a matter of fact. All of us are under the creation covenant. Adam is what's known as our head. He represented us. And so when Adam fell in the garden, then that means all humans descended from Adam have violated in him and continue of ourselves to violate his covenant. Paul explains it like this in Romans 5.12. Since sin and death entered the world through one man, so also death spread to all people because all sinned. Which is to say, that a result of Adam's sin is that all human beings are spiritually dead and they express their spiritual death by continuing in sin. Oh, friends, we all need peace with God. We all have a reason to look at this chapter and say, oh, that does apply to me. Not only because Jesus explicitly said it does. I have other sheep that I'm bringing in. So, this is why at Advent should be such an amazing thing for us. Because what we have in Advent is Jesus establishing the new covenant. Do you remember what he said before going to the cross? This is the new covenant in my blood. He established this new covenant, the cutting of a new covenant. And so during Advent, we've talked about, we have these last couple of weeks, have talked about this returning to, or this God returning and, and bringing back his fellowship, his presence with his people. So I got to give you a little just kind of picture of how this holds together. The whole Bible story, and Ezekiel in particular, is a story about losing and regaining the presence of God. So here's the Bible story real quick, is Adam was created in the garden, as we've been saying. And it says that he walked with God in the cool of the day. But when Adam sinned, he was banished from the garden, and the flaming swords kept him out. No more access to the presence of God. From then on, the next time you see the presence of God explicitly is in very unique places, in very particular places, and then it kind of culminates in this Mosaic covenant we've been talking about with the tabernacle. We have a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. 
as Moses went into the presence of the Lord. And that was God's presence with his people. And it eventually became a temple that was in the land, as we've said. Well, the book of Ezekiel picks up at that point. But the beginning of Ezekiel is this. Everybody has been banished. They've all been carried away captive. And so chapter 1 of Ezekiel opens with this. Ezekiel has a vision. And he sees, for lack of a better term, a, a mobile throne chariot. This might be the best way to say it. it. It's this, like, he says this great vision. You should go read it. The wheel within a wheel and the flaming wheels. And, the, and above it, I saw the image of the likeness of the glory of the mighty of the holy. It, he's just trying to use this really weird language because he's saying, I, I can't describe it. But later we find out it's the glory of the Lord. And so here's what God's saying. Ezekiel. Something's coming that nobody's going to be ready for. But I don't need a temple. I don't need that little plot of land in Jerusalem to be with my people. Because I'm right here with you on the banks of the Kabar Canal. Some seven, 800 miles away. I'm with you. And then in chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, you get the working out of what's called Ichabod, that the glory has departed. And Ezekiel again gets these visions of their false worship, and God shows him all the reasons. And then that mobile ch- throne chariot pops up again. And you see the presence and the glory of the Lord depart from the temple and mount up onto the the chariot and it lifts up and it lands on the Mount of Olives east of the city. The glory has departed. The temple no longer and never will again house the glory of God. It's gone. But did you catch the other trick in this little passage? It's so easy to miss in verse 30. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them. Friends, I submit to you that the first people that heard this had no category yet for what that looked like. But he says, one day, I will be with them. Well, if you fast forward some 550 years later, on the streets of Palestine, a man would say, destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. Now, you have to understand, by this point, they'd been back in the land, and the temple had been rebuilt. As a matter of fact, it had undergone 46 years of beautification and of expansion project. And so they look at him here in John 2 and they say, it took 46 years to build that temple. You're going to do it in three days? And thankfully, John gives us a little narrator's note on the side and he says, he was talking about the temple of his body. So friends, that's what we celebrate here at Advent is that the shepherd is with us, that he has come to be with us. So the whole Bible is getting to this story to answer this question, how can he be with us? So we've seen that God in the Old Testament has given us these clues. He's dropped these clues particularly about being a shepherd. We've seen how we are all, whether you are a Christian or you've never been a Christian, you are at enmity with God. You are broken in your relationship because your father Adam abandoned and broke the covenant. And then you have continued on in his footsteps. Or maybe if we have some Jewish folk with us, the Mosaic Covenant was broken back in Ezekiel's day. They haven't carried on the worship like that since. Because that's why Malachi at the end of the Old Testament is going to say the same thing. Well, you're back and you have a temple, but you're not worshiping me the way I prescribed. So that's where we're at. And God promises to be the shepherd. And God promises to bind and heal and seek and save. But why did Jesus have to die? It's still the question we haven't quite answered, have we? Well, because we needed peace. So Jesus came to restore with us the presence of God. But he couldn't do that only by being a shepherd. In in fact, what we read then in this section 
is that Jesus is not only the good shepherd, but he's the sacrificial lamb. See, Jesus brings in and binds up and heals because he came and was cast out and was wounded and was crushed for his sheep. Friends, I hope you see how the clues sprinkle throughout the whole story of the Bible and how it drives us to the fact that we need a shepherd. We need God himself to shepherd us. And yet, we needed something even more than that. We needed peace with God. And so Jesus becomes the peace offering. He becomes the sin offering, the lamb slain to bring peace, to die for his sheep, even though he is the shepherd. So friends, again, I hope that you see the beauty of this story as we continue to celebrate his coming to be with his people, of his bringing us back to himself, of his peace, and of bringing us into a new covenant Because this promised son who shepherds his people does so by dying for them as the sacrificial lamb. Would you pray with me?